You're listening to 340B Unscripted. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening to 340B Unscripted. I'm Greg Wilson here with my co-host, Rob DeHoopy. Hey, Rob. Happy New Year. How are you doing? Great. Happy New Year. I'm doing okay. I, it sounds like um both nursing a little bit of a cold. Uh, must must have been too good of a, a new year to start, I think. Yeah, a little winter w- winter illness kicked in early, so recovering now. So got to be quick on the mute button to, to shield <laughs> everyone from, from some yeah. coughing here, I think. No one wants so. to hear us coughing. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Well, happy new year. How's the, how's the new year starting for you? You know, so far so good. Um, getting caught up on some of the work was, has been nice. I still got a little to go, but um, looking forward to what 2024 has to bring. And um, it's been kind of quiet on the 340B front as we expected with the holidays, but uh, there's not, not any news. So we got some stuff to share, I think. How about yeah, yourself? Yeah. Yeah. Just back, back to, back to the grind here. So this is our first recording after the start of the new year, I'm, I'm actually out traveling on site. So I'm, I'm recording this from, uh, from the hotel before we start some auditing today. So yeah, it's nice to, uh, had a nice, nice break. Uh, I got to spend a lot of time with, with family and kind of catch up on, you know, some things at home, but, um, back to the grind here. So looking forward to, um, bringing more podcast episodes forward. Let's do it. Let's do it. All right. Well, I think today's episode, we're going to kind of continue the series of discussions that we started in the fall of last year. And things got busy, so we, we really couldn't pick up with it. Uh, but now we've got some time to go through data request list items. So I think we had an episode yeah. back in November, October, November, where we started going through the different data elements that are included in the data request list. So when a covered entity receives a HRSA audit notice, that notice is accompanied with a data request list, outlines a number of different um, uh, informational items and, and data elements that need to be provided to HRSA in the context of an audit. And we talked about policies and procedures. And today we're just going to go down the list here. So move down to DRL item two, which is eligibility documentation. Big section, lots of lots of documents that need to be provided, particularly for hospitals. And a lot of these documents aren't owned by the pharmacy department or the the 340B team typically, Rob. So you're 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 typically soliciting some support from finance folks or folks from administration to gather up all of these documents, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, a lot of times if you're doing your annual audits and everything, these are things you should have at the ready, but you're right. It's still a pretty heavy lift if you, if you go through the DRO number two. And I know a lot of times, you know, you and I talked like, yeah, we could probably knock out a few of these DRO items together. And we looked at number two and we're like, yeah, that's probably its own episode. So it's going to be a decent chunk of information, um, different ways to do it. Different covered entities have different types of cost reports and trial balances. And so I definitely a little bit to go through there. I guess before we yeah. get into that, do we want to hit a few of the highlights um, and some of the news items that we have? Yeah, yeah. Let's talk about what's happened over the last couple of weeks, um, some developments maybe um, with regard to contract pharmacy uh, restrictions. Let's start with you, Rob. What's, what's one thing that you picked up from the news that you want to chat about? You know, the, the, I guess I, I can't rem- honestly, I can't remember if we talked about uh, Takeda number 29 manufacturer. I mean, Ed, I think we did, so so I won't cover that in detail, but we do have 29 manufacturers restricting 340B pricing. I guess the one change we know occurred more recently was uh, Gilead. Um, they, they use, so they impact all covered entity types, right? So both hospitals and grantees. So that's why that's a little bit more important, really high cost hep C drugs. 
And um, they took away the health system on exception. So it's kind of sad to see that because we don't have a lot of health system on exceptions for if if your health system owns the, um, a retail pharmacy, but not your specific covered entity. Um, that was part of, you know, it was, it was accepted so that you didn't have to send data to get access or treat it as a contract pharmacy. And now you will. So just for everyone, if if you're using a health system on exception, say for a specialty pharmacy, for Gilead's drugs, Hep C drugs, now you're going to have to decide if that's going to be your single contract pharmacy or not. So kind of a material change because of the drugs involved um, in, in Gilead's restrictions. Yeah, so I think we've kind of talked about this, that, you know, the, these, you know, enhanced or, or furthering of restrictions is probably expected. We're going to see this whole issue get worse before it gets better and don't, at this point still have any visibility into relief coming from the the two additional court cases that have yet to have a ruling made um but we are again seeing some progress made on like in, in favor of covered entities with regard to um state level uh legislation protecting contract pharmacies so some activity happening down in arkansas remember arkansas has a state specific law that protects contract pharmacies and we've seen a number of manufacturers relax their uh, contract pharmacy restrictions to uh, covered entities that are in those states. Through uh, there, there's in there, one manufacturer, Nova Nordisk, is challenging the Arkansas law in court. And while that um, court case is pending, the Arkansas Insurance Division and Nova Nordisk struck an agreement. This is an article that was uh, published by 340B Report. They were the first to, to share this publicly, but there's an agreement in place between the Arkansas Insurance Division and Nova Nordisk that um, kind of outlines uh, an agreement or a, a process for covered entities to continue to access 340B pricing in their contract pharmacy channels while they wait for uh, the court to make a ruling on the legality of the, um, the Arkansas law. And interestingly, in this agreement, um, there is some uh, outlining of patient definition. There's a, uh, a stipulation that says in order for a patient to be uh, deemed eligible to receive 340B drugs from one of these impacted contract pharmacies, they have to have an encounter at the covered entity within six months of the dispensing date. So um, fairly narrow uh, interpretation of patient eligibility compared to what we have seen um, elsewhere. Any thoughts on that, Rob? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think the Genesis Law case sort of opened up that um, window a little bit. I mean, you know, a lot of people are thinking two years. I mean, something we've talked about before. So I've heard some people really thinking about three years. So six months is really narrow. And and I struggle with that because you, you almost think, gosh, a one year at minimum would make sense. So going six months is really tight. Um, so I'm not sure how I feel about that. But um, I mean, a lot of patients get seen once a year. So that's that seems overly um, restrictive. Yeah. But if they made the deal, they made a deal, I guess. And, and of course, I, you're reading that article. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't say that and more deals to come. So I'm like, oh, great. So this will be piecemeal. Will deals be different? Like it's going to be, right, our, we're going to have to come up with a better spreadsheet um, to track all these, these things. Right. Yeah, we're going to go to like legal paper instead of an eight and a half by 11 sheet of paper. Yeah, you know, if there's another agreement between, you know, AstraZeneca or Merck and uh, Arkansas, may maybe they're going to take a different approach with regard to patient definition. So it'll, it could be very challenging for covered entities to to try to navigate uh, a variety of different patient definitions as, you know, relates to these these types of interim agreements as opposed to just, you know, having a standardized approach. So, and I, I don't know where six months came from because, you know, state law typically allows you to write for refills up to a year. So you're essentially interrupting patient therapy if you're saying, look, this isn't going to qualify after six months, even though the provider may be intended on that drug continuing on for a year before they see them again back in the 
hospital clinic. So um, don't know exactly the rationale behind that, but um, we'll, we'll see what, you know, if, if that sticks or if that changes in the future, or if there are different approaches that other manufacturers and doctors will take to um, allow for uh, a, a more reasonable patient definition. Speaking of patient definition, an update on um, the Genesis case. Hearst is not appealing the the ruling in the Genesis case. Any thoughts, Rob, on Hearst's decision to uh, forgo an appeal? Yeah, I you know well, I mean, no. So so what we did know, which which came out before the holidays break, was that Hearst published um, you know basically just a restatement of the guidance that they provided to date. And, and they didn't say anything new. So we're like, okay, we don't know exactly what that means. And so now I think we're at this stage where maybe they're going to appeal. That's why they didn't, they didn't um, say anything new. So I, I don't know because now everyone wants to decide, okay, how are we going to use Genesis? And we don't know how broadly applicable it is. We, all we know is that Hearst just restated their previous guidance around patient definition. And so, yeah, I'm kind of, I'm curious um, to see where this goes. Um, I'm also curious if the courts who asked Hersa to, um, restate and clarify things for covered entities is going to come back and say, hey, you didn't really actually meet that request because you didn't do anything new. You didn't yeah. clarify anything. All you did was restate what you had, which was confusion in the first place. And so, yeah, I feel, I don't know. I'm trying to think of a great analogy for this. It's it's almost like, what, steak with no sizzle? What, what How do people say that sometimes? Um, it just feels like something, it's like we expected something more and we just didn't get it. And now I'm just kind of like, yeah. uh, blah. Um, that's how I feel yeah. about it, blah. Yeah. An underwhelming development, so not a lot of uh, actionable information coming from from HRSA to, for covered entities to, to do anything with right now. So. Yeah, yeah. Hey, one more thing I saw uh, as well on the news before we get into our DRL topic. Um, you know, I always track, uh, I like to track the different representatives and senators in Congress, especially the ones with, you know, that seem to have a little bit more impact on the 340B program. And 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 one that was out of Indiana, uh, uh, Representative uh, Bouchon, um, Larry Bouchon, did announce he's retiring from Congress at the end of this session. Damn. And remember, he's one that's put forth some bills that um, that were more, I, I would say, tends more to be more negative towards 340B. So I, not that I, I think anyone retiring is bad or anything like that, but um, uh, or good, good. But uh, but you know, I think that's positive sign for a 340B um, because uh, that's one you know proponent. Um, or opponent, proponent, gosh, never mind. One person who's not favorable toward the 340B program that's no longer going to be in Congress. I think that's always going to be helpful for us. But, you know, and I, I don't I don't know his full track record. Maybe he's, he's done some uh, positive things for 340B. I just know the last bill we saw came out was, was a little more on the negative side. So um, just like to share that, you know, sometimes changes in, in the guard at the um, Energy and Commerce Committee levels does help 340B, especially getting helping get bills through like Doris is on that committee and Doris Matsui, Representative Matsui. And um, maybe that helps us get the contract pharmacy um, restrictions bill um, in there. Maybe not. It still, has got, it still has to get to the floor um, or to the committee for um, review, but just, you know, I always like to highlight some, some positive news. Yeah. All right. Well, let's get into our topic of discussion today. So talking about the data request list, section two eligibility documentation. This is one part of the DRL that varies between grantee covered entities, CHCs, other grantee programs, and hospitals. The, we'll start with the grantee side because it's it's a lot more truncated. Section two, there's less information that the grantee programs need to provide. Two um, A is a list of locations where healthcare services are provided um, who are deemed 340B eligible. And HRSA asks for you to identify the name, the physical address, and the EHR location codes that are in um, the medical record that identify use of the drugs uh, for those patients. And two B 
is uh, some information around the grantee award. So notice, a, notice of a, the grant award and or maybe some sub-grantee documentation. So this is where the covered entity would pr provide if they're listed in HRSA's EHB or electronic handbook, um, forms 5A that outlines scope of services and forms 5B that identify service locations. Um, so providing some documentation from the EHB and then also uploading any additional subgrantee documentation that your clinic might have. That could be something like the notice of funding award between the primary grantee and subgrantees, a notice of grant award project narrative that identifies the um, subgrantees recipient of uh, or receipt of funding and then any additional in-kind supports. So that might be some contracts or other agreements or MOUs that uh, substantiate the, the uh, grantee funding that's received by the covered entity. So fairly straightforward. This is based off of the FY23 data request list. So uh, we don't have, have not heard any indication that this has changed since the FY24 um, DRL has been published, but if any CHCs are out there that have been audited by HRSA during fiscal year 24 and are seeing something different in terms of CE eligibility documentation for grantees, certainly let us know. Rob, any thoughts? Yeah, the only thing I'd like to add is, you know, one thing a little different from grantees to and hospitals is the fact they don't have a Medicare cost report internal balance. And so it is really the electronic handbook and the locations you have listed. Um, one other difference, though, is uh, especially by address, um, if, you know, if a, a CHC has or FQHC has multiple services at a single address, sometimes it's only listed once in the electronic handbook, but it could be multiple locations. So for DRL 2A, when you're listing your locations, you want to make sure you're listing every single location, even if it's one child. Uh, grantee listing, I shouldn't say child site listing, uh, grantee listing. And then with that, um, that's where you, what takes a little bit more effort is mapping it to your electronic health record shorthand location codes. Cause that's important, right? When you send your data for your administered drugs or even data for um, prescriptions and if your location data is in the prescription data, they want to be able to see that all, all those locations are on your eligible location list. So as a double check, we always say, and this is gonna be true for the hospital side as well, what you want to do is make sure that you have all of your locations, even if it's not individually listed in, in OPACE, and then make sure you map that to what that location looks like in your data, whatever that shorthand code that's going to come across your EHR. That's what HERS is really looking for. And that's going to really help you during a HERS audit, because if you send data during a HERS audit, if in your six month data window for your administered drugs, or your prescription drugs, it has locations listed that aren't in your location eligibility list, there'll be questions. Now, you might still be able to map it and to, oh yeah, that, that's this one, but it's a lot easier if you can get all those things mapped. So double check your data to make sure all those locations are in there. That's also good because if you find locations that aren't on your eligible location list, maybe it's not an eligible location or maybe you're missing something or maybe you have to add something to your EHB. So it's a nice good double check when you're, when you're building that out. Excellent tip. All right, let's talk about the hospital DRL because this is a little more dense, this section two, um, section two, covered entity eligibility documentation. It's really focuses on, like you had mentioned, Rob, for hospitals, it's gonna be Medicare cost report information, and then the trial balance details that go along with that cost report, as well as documentation that validates your hospital's um, uh, stance as a uh, not-for-profit or government facility. So we'll get through all of that. Let's start with 2A. 2A, and sometimes 2C, I think we've talked about this, Rob, kind of go hand in hand maybe. 2A is a list of all of the locations where you're providing services to individuals um, that are deemed 340B eligible and they want you to include the physical address. Um, maybe we'll also include 2C here where 2C is, is essentially the trial balance location crosswalk. So 2C, uh, 2A is a list of all your eligible locations. And then 2C specifies that for all of your offsite 
facilities. So these would be your registered child sites that utilize 340B drugs. You need to provide an unbundled trial balance. Um, so the worksheet A and worksheet C trial balance details for revenue and expense for all of your departments that goes along with your Medicare cost report. And a document that you create that essentially crosswalks all of your child sites back to the trial balance in the MCR. So the trial balance crosswalk, it's a, I think a really helpful tool for managing your program, but again, something that HRSA wants in their audits. Um, the trial balance crosswalk has a number of data elements that need to be included. So there's, I think it's seven points. So it's the 340B ID of the child site, the name of the department on OPACE, the physical address as listed on OPACE, and then the Medicare cost report line and Medicare cost report description um, as listed on worksheets A and C, the trial balance name and department code or the accounting unit, the location code or the EHR department shorthand ID from your medical record that's going to appear in your utilization data. And then the final column is an indicator as to whether or not drugs are, 340B drugs are administered during encounters at each of the child sites. So A is a list of all of your eligible locations, which could be child sites or could be within the four walls. And 2C is specifically related to your offsite registered child sites. Rob, how do you approach putting that documentation together for HRSA audits? Yeah, I mean, the first thing I'll tell everybody is that is not, depends on depends on the size of your hospital. I guess it depends on the size of your hospital, but that can be actually a big, this is, could be a big project. So if, if anyone kind of watched our webinar last year about taking those trial balance um, detailed worksheets and kind of getting them together where you're lining up expenses, charges, and each location code or cost center, that's actually how we do. I like to do it, right? Because that's what HRSA is going to do as well. They're going to look at every single eligible yep. location and they're going to determine, do you have expenses and do you have charges? Are they eligible locations? Even if it's within the four walls or not, that's why they want, that's why 2B is they want that detail. They want to see that. So what we like to do is just do all that work, right? And I, me personally, for all of the HRSA audits I support, we actually combine 2A and 2C because if you're talking about eligible locations, when you do all that work anyway, you're going to have them all. So we end up with one large spreadsheet of every single eligible location, including your inpatient units between lines 30 and 49, and then all of your eligible locations between lines 50 and 118. We line them all up. And then what we do is we I get the expenses and charges next to each other so we know what all of the eligible locations are. And then we go through and then we add in all of the child site IDs. So that's the 340B child site IDs. So we know where all our child sites are. Now, everything else we have to determine, okay, are they in the four walls? If they're in the four walls, great. If not, then they should have been registered, right? Or if not, then they, you could have stuff like lab or imaging locations where you don't really use drugs and they could be external. So you can remove those, right? But then you're going to go through this whole process of and say, okay, which are the areas that all use 340B drugs or can write a prescription? They all should be on my list. And then you're going to end up with a list of everything that's a child site and everything that's within your four walls and eligible or using 340B or could write a prescription. And then for your 340B child sites, you're going to do all those things you mentioned in, in um, DRL2C, right? You're going to add all that information. And then for everything else, you can just put parent or, or four walls address because they say include the physical address. So just list your physical address for all of your parent locations. And then the final thing is what I just talked about for the clinics. 
you're going to want to then make sure that you go through your EHR location codes and you're going to make sure you add your EHR location location codes to all of those locations. That way, when it shows up your data, it's easy for the Hearst auditor to say, oh yeah, here's the location. It makes it real simple. So again, the double check is when you get your six, pull, pull your data, look at your six months of data or look at any data you have, check the location codes in there. Make sure every one of those location codes are mapped to your 2A2C kind of um, trial balance uh, worksheet um, uh, mapping, right? Because then you know you've got everything covered. So that's that's my take-home message, how to do that. But don't underestimate the time it takes, especially adding all those EHR location codes. And do remember, sometimes you have one location might have more than one EHR location code. We find that a lot because a lot of hospitals will want to have specificity for maybe the type of procedure. Like I've seen cath lab have a few different EHR location codes or maybe a specific floor on a unit might have different um, location codes for the type of patient that's on that floor, if it's a med surge unit. And so you can, you will see some location codes, um, multiple location codes per location in some cases. Um, Greg, I'm curious how you approach it as well. Yeah, pretty similar to that. You know, I think typically we're, you know, you know, what, what I've done in the past is, you know, put together 2C for the child sites, but also include a tab on the document that is essentially 2A that lists all of the departments, including the um, the, the locations that would roll up under the four walls in the parent 340 BID. You, you got it, and you definitely have to do it. I advise you to do it now as opposed to until you waiting until you get your, your HRSA audit notice, because it really does take a lot of time to tease out all of the cost center mapping and the EHR departments and making sure they're mapped to the correct location, especially if you have a lot of child sites, because it ends up becoming um, a, a really heavy lift to put this document together in a short amount of time. You may only have three weeks to get all of your HRSA data together. And you need to also be pulling, as we'll talk about in future episodes, all of your 340B utilization data, all of your purchasing data, and gathering all of that information as well is a really heavy lift. So if this is a document that you can prepare ahead of time and maintain on an annual basis as your cost reports filed, really, really helpful for streamlining your response to a HRSA audit, but also it's a great strategic tool for managing oversight to your program. Yeah, I mean, you, so everyone who um, works with us today um, and our clients out there, they know that this is something on our annual audits we do every time, right? We start building yeah. this whole um, trial balance crosswalk mapping because because it's going to be needed and it takes a lot of time. So um, if you don't happen to be a client today, it's something definitely start working on. Try and get that map ready so that um, it'll shorten your time when, when you actually get your first audit request. Yeah, I mean, it, it, this is the tool that helps you identify where you may have some gaps in your OPA database. So OPA errors account for, I think it's like over 50% of audit findings. So you can often find, you know, incorrectly registered child sites or, or missing addresses um, or other, you know, gaps in your listing of your departments on the OPACE by paying some attention to this trial balance crosswalk. And also operationally, it may help you identify where you have some, uh, some leakage or some un unnecessary wax spend if you're not qualifying uh, certain departments because those EHR locations haven't been configured into your TPA. Conducting the exercise of crosswalking all of your EHR departments back to their respective cost centers may help you identify where you might need to add some additional locations to your um, TPA to, to maximize your participation in the 340B program. So this doesn't just have a compliance component to it. This also generates some, some value for you in terms of optimizing your 340B program. Yeah, Greg, that's a great point. Um, we've seen that a lot where we're saying, well, where's these location codes? Like, we don't know. It's not in the data. And they're like, well, that location should be in the data. 
and they find out, oh yeah, for you know, the location codes got changed at some point by their, um, you know, their IT department, and then they didn't get added to the data abstract for the uh, TPA that they're sending data to. And you're right; it's just, it just it ends up become, becoming wax pen because you're not accumulating. So that's a that's a great point. Yeah. So two A and two C are the two elements from this section that are going to create the most work for covered entities in terms of preparing. 2B is the Medicare cost report. So Hearst is asking for you to upload a copy of the most recently filed MCR, and they want the encrypted uh, signature stamp on Worksheet S. So I know sometimes we'll encounter uh, MCRs during our audits where there's a wet signature on Worksheet S, but Hearst has specifically more recently been asking for the encrypted signature, so the digital signature. Has that been your experience, Rob? Yes, if and even though even if it's signed by your um, you know your CEO or CFO whoever signs your um, Medicare cost report, they, uh, it feels like they always want that encrypted um, signature. And so if you, if you haven't seen it, when you look on that worksheet S, it, it literally says encryption, and there's this long string of characters. You do have to make sure that's the one you're submitting. And if you don't, then they'll they'll ask for it. I haven't have none of the um, four Hearst audits that I participated in for fiscal year 24 so far um, have been able to get away with not sending that encrypted document. You know, and there's a couple of sub bullet points under 2B for the MCR. Hearst is going to ask you for the Medicare cost report that was used at the time of your last recertification, but they also want the Medicare cost report that's been most recently filed, start of the sample period. And that may be different. And with the change in OPACE last year, allowing covered entities to submit a change request to update qualification info related to the MCR. Uh, this is another area where we've seen some covered entities get OPA database findings when they've not updated the MCR after the most recently filed cost report um, from what was listed during their prior recertification period. So there's another opportunity to, to you know, mitigate the potential audit finding if you're looking at your Medicare cost report as soon as it's filed and going in and submitting a change request to update things like the filing date and the cost reporting period and the disproportionate share percentage. Yep, absolutely. Got to get them updated. Anytime you file a cost report or an amended cost report, make sure you're up, upload, updating the information in OPAs for sure. All right. Anything else from 2A, 2B, or 2C, Rob? No, I think that covers it. I mean, it, just please don't underestimate the time and work it takes to build that. And uh, again, I like Greg mentioned, if you do it now before you get your HRSA audit, that means you can, you'll find these things that are unfixable, right? If you do the process when you get your HRSA data request and you identify, holy crap, we didn't actually register a couple locations. Well, that's not really fixable at that point um, before your HRSA yeah. audit. So it'll end up being OPA's database findings. Um, if, if it's locations that utilize 340B drugs or write prescriptions that you're qualifying as 340B. So definitely something to do now if you haven't already done it. Yeah. I mean, and the OPA database findings are um, small in terms of implications, I think, compared to some other types of findings, typically don't see repayment sanctions when you make a OPA database errors, but um, you do have to correct those things in, within a corrective action plan, and um, you'll be listed on HRSA's program integrity page as having audits, so manufacturers could, you know, initiate inquiries based on um, notice that you've uh, been non-compliant in managing your program. So um, I think some people think of the OPA database finding errors as maybe more ticky-tack findings, but um, you know, certainly want to mitigate them if you, you can. And you can easily do that as long as you're paying attention to the cost report and the trial balance as it's filed and, and tuning up OPACE um, uh, when, when that occurs. All right, let's move on and talk about um, the rest of section two. This is essentially documentation that validates your hospital classification. So there's 2D, which is for hospitals that are owned or operated by a state or local government. 
Um, so these, these are uh, state facilities or government owned facilities. Um, you need to provide documentation that indicates the ownership or operation by that uh, government. So there's a number of different options that HRSA outlines that you can provide. Sometimes it's a, a state law or a county law or uh, some type of hospital charter or bylaws that demonstrate government uh, ownership of the, the covered entity and also documentation from the IRS that describes the hospital. Um, any thoughts, Rob, on or, or maybe pitfalls that, that some of our hospital-owned or state-owned, government-owned facilities have run into with regard to eligibility documentation? Yeah, I, I wonder if we. So I would say um, for the for the not for not for profits that have a contract with state or local government, it's that contract, right? If you haven't had a HERSA audit lately, yeah. I feel like HERSA was a little loose. Um, early in the program. And sometimes people didn't really have a contract because if you've been in program a while back in the day, I like to use that term. Um, you just have to submit this attestation when you registered and the attestation said, we have a contract. And then there even has like a, yeah. it was like a can form and it even said, you're supposed to put the contract number in there. And we've actually ran across covered entities that just filled out that form and had the, um, their government official sign it, but there wasn't actually a contract. All they have was this attestation. So the attestation is not the contract. That's an attestation a contract exists. So the only thing I can say is make sure you have a contract. The other thing is we run into some clients that have a contract with a state entity like Medicaid, their Medicaid office or something else. And it doesn't have that language that's re that's required, right? There's 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 some specific language that talks about um, providing services to patients who aren't eligible for Medicaid and Medicare, right? They actually use the actual titles, but um, and so you have to have specific language in that contract. But we just have a Medicaid contract. I was like, well, it's a Medicaid contract that doesn't actually tell you you're providing charity care um, to patients who have an inability to pay for their um, care. So so make sure that you meet those requirements and have an appropriate contract. Our recommendation is an MOU. Those that work with us, we do have a standard draft form. If you work with anybody else, they should have something that you can use. But we have a, a MOU document, a memorandum of understanding that meets all the requirements of the contract with state or local government. So just make sure you have that because that can be a sticking point during a HRSA audit. Is, is that contract meeting all, all the expectations of HRSA? So that's the biggest one for the not-for-profits that I, I run across. Yeah, so that's 2E. So 2E is your, your private nonprofit hospitals. They have to have contract in place with state or local government. So there are some specific provisions, as Rob mentioned, that are listed on the DRL um, with some clauses that need to be in there. Also, there's some, uh, HRSA asks you some procedurally to highlight some of the information on the contract. So highlighting the name of the hospital and the government agency, highlighting the names of the representatives that signed and executed the contract, and then um, highlighting the effective date of the contract. Rob, a question that comes up every once in a while is like, look, we put together our MOU, we've got our MOU together with the state, but it, it was executed after our participating start date on uh, OPA. So we've been within the 340B program for, for years and years and years, and we recognized we needed a contract, but um, the the date of the contract doesn't um, cover our initial participation in the program. What what, what should covered entities do, or what are the concerns if there's maybe a, a a gap in coverage of that contract for the entire time that you've been participating in the program? Yeah, you know, I. So first of all, I apologize. I think we're focused on two D, and I jumped to two E. So I apologize, everyone. I just realized I did that. Um, <laughs> So remember, we're unscripted, uh, but uh, sticking with 2E then, um, yeah, that, that's always a tough one because it's hard to go back in time. I mean, we've some, seen some people kind of do a, a retro agreement, but at least from my experience, you know, we tell horses, you know, sometimes we can't find the original. Um, there's a lot of people that change and so forth. So 
if it's an evergreen contract from when it was signed, we, you know, we just say that's the contract, even if it might have been executed after the start date. Uh, but my, my thing is just get a contract in place as soon as you can. We've seen HRSA accept them, even if the dates don't go back in time. Some people will try and retro, retro something. That's a little harder, in my opinion. Sometimes states don't want to sign that or government agencies don't want to sign that. But but my thing is have a contract in place. And, um, you know, and and we've done it. I've done it in the past where I said, look, they signed up 30 years, 20 years ago. No one here is aware. We can't find it. So we have this one. Um, yep. We know we have a contract today. And it, it didn't seem to be an issue. I'm not sure if you had different uh, experiences there. Now, it hasn't been an issue as long as the, the government contract uh, was in place at the start of the audit period. Um, but yeah, I, I think, yeah, if, you, if you're concerned about you know, the validity of that documentation or if you don't have copies of those contracts, you want to work to to get them in place um, sooner rather than later. This is something that we've seen HRSA do desk audits on during recertifications a few years ago, where upon recertification, uh, HRSA would query, you know, a select number of covered entities that, hey, can you send us a copy of your government contract? So you don't want to be caught without it. And I do think, Rob, you made a great point that that certification or that attestation, many people think back in the day assumed that satisfied the the need for having an MOU or maybe misinterpreted that as being the MOU where um, it really doesn't meet all of the, the criteria for that government contract. Yeah. Yeah. True. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's, uh, that's, that's these, our stances, just get it in place. Make sure you have it. If you, if you can't find it or, or it doesn't, you don't think it meets needs, get something that meets all those requirements. And uh, we probably should jump back to 2D real quick. Yeah. I don't think I had anything else for, for 2D. So it's typically going to be, you know, copy of the, the the state law or articles of incorporation or whatever founded the uh, the organization. Have you run into any uh, any roadblocks for these types of hospitals? No, I, so I, I think it's pretty straightforward. I think you're right. Right? There's they they offer five different options. Sometimes they say you might need more than one um, just to prove prove that you are. Um, owned or operated by state or local government. But no, most most of the time they're they're gonna be in one of those documents or multiple documents stating what they are. And and of course the only thing, other thing I'd say is also make sure that your um control type within the cost report matches what you are. Um, we've run into issues where uh, hospitals acquired, and so they might have been a not-for-profit, but now they're state-owned, um, and and somehow that didn't get updated um, in their Medicare cost report um, to to what they're listed on on OPEs as. And so just make sure you're making that sure that gets updated if you do have a change in control type, because uh, if you get to a hearse audit and those two things don't line up, that will be a finding, and that almost could be a finding that could be like, hey, you're not eligible for the program because you're not listed on the. Yeah, it's an eligibility type. issue. Yeah. yeah, great point. Yeah, that's another thing. In addition to the government contracts and the government documentation, is proof of nonprofit status for those no private nonprofit hospitals. There's a number of documents that covered entity might need to provide um, to demonstrate nonprofit uh, designation. So most often, I think more recently, the HRSA auditors have been specifically asking for the covered entity to upload an IRS form 990, yep. um, but seen some other covered entities provide uh, 501c3 certifications or other documentation from the IRS that helps to demonstrate that the EIN used for registering the covered entity. You have to put your, your tax identification number into your OPACE database registration when you register, uh, matching up the EIN to documentation from the Treasury Department that proves your, your nonprofit status. Yeah, yep. that 990 seems to be the most constant, uh, constant one that we see the request for. That's 
public. I was, I was wondered, you know, it's the IRS 990s can, they're publicly available, but HRSA continues to ask for covered entities to, to upload them. Any, any thoughts as to why that might be the case? I don't know. Technically, even the cost report information you, through a Hickorus, you can get. So I always, I, I find it interesting too that um, uh, the federal government doesn't access their own other federal government agencies' documents. They'd be To me, it's like, it's the best way to get them is just get them from the federal government, right? Um, so yeah, I'm not sure why, why that's the case. Maybe it's just too much work. It's easier just ask the covered entity. All right. And, and then 2F is uh, for uh, hospitals that are either private or public nonprofit hospitals that have been granted uh, formal government power. So not owned by the government, but some type of uh, statute that grants governmental powers um, to the, the covered entities. So similar to, to duty, you need to provide either the you know hospital charter or the documentation from the state that grants those, um, those powers to the covered entity in addition to your nonprofit documentation. So your IRS Form 990, 501c3 certification. So um, again, nothing too concerning or unusual being asked there for, for 2F. No, not really. And and just, you know, some people wonder, well, who, who has this, this different status? The most common one I see would be, there's a lot of critical access hospitals that um, that are created as uh, government hospital districts. And um, and they're kind of just in between, right? They're not really federal government. They're kind of this, this sort of, they don't receive funding. It's all these things. So that's the common one I see. And then, yeah, and there's a lot of um, potential ways that you should through hospital char charters, bylaws. Um, the law that created the hospital, that's the most common one. I know in Washington state, we work with critical access hospitals. Almost all of the critical access hospitals there are um, created by law as uh, hospital districts, so pseudo-government. Um, so that's an interesting category, but we see that quite a bit um, with critical access. And that rounds out section two. So that's all of your eligibility documentation. Any other pearls of wisdom, Rob, for, for the eligibility documents? No, I think we covered it. I think we covered it pretty well. I mean, right, the the eligibility documents are important. That's usually not the heavy lift. Um, just just really for the not-for-profits, just getting that contract is probably the biggest, biggest thing. Just double check your contract. Um, I, I don't I think we talked about it, but I just want to cover it one more time. People do stress out over, oh gosh, this thing is 25 years old. That person who signed it's not there. Remember, if you're signing the contract with an agency, not a person. And so if that person was in a position of power with the authority to sign at the time, then it's still valid. So because most people have evergreen contracts. We have seen HRSA ask for updates, so it should be updated, but it's not absolutely required. We've been able to say, hey, look, it's it's in place, it's evergreen. Um you know, sometimes if you have the opportunity to update it, that's great, especially if it's missing a little bit of the language or it's not perfect. But in general, they, they seem to be fine. So people stress out over the age of the contract. But if it's evergreen and doesn't have a term clause, but I will say some contracts we see do have term clauses. So you want to pay attention to that term to make sure that it hasn't terminated because it's going to terminate after five years or, you know, it has to be something has to occur for it to um, renew. And those, those things haven't occurred. So you have to make sure that contract's still valid, um, especially for the time period of the audit. That's probably the biggest thing there. No, that's a great tip. The um, the the government agency representative previously, so back before, um, I think it was spring of last year, you'd have to record the government official on your OPA database registration under the qualification info tab where your contract is identified and where your cost report information is recorded. Um, they took away the government official field, so you no longer have to keep that field 
updated. And we would always get questions, you know, well, the person that signs our contracts, not the same person in office today, do we need to do anything? And you're right, Rob, there's really no requirement to refresh the contract if the original signer of the uh, agreement is is no longer in their um, their, their position within that government agency is a great, great tip. So no need to chase your tail on something that's not required. Okay. Well, that's, that sounds great. I guess with that, that's zero two. Um, definitely one episode. We can't, probably can't get into number three today. Yeah, I think, yeah, number three is big. And they even state that during the pre-audit calls that, you know, sometimes they come back to section three. Three is your 340B universes. So that's where all of your utilization data is going to need to be uh, identified. So all your hospital administered or clinic administered drugs, all your retail scripts, all your contract pharmacy claims. And um, that ends up taking probably the most amount of time organizing and, and Hersa spends a lot of time kind of explaining what they want to see with that section during the pre-audit call. So we'll take our time walking through some tips and tricks for, for keeping that data organized on our next episode. Sounds good. Okay. And before we go, I think Aiden, our producer has um, um, some asks of us. Yeah, we've got uh, coalition coming up. So we're recording this at the beginning of January. You guys will be listening to this probably middle of January. Coalition. Um, I'm not going, Rob, but you're going. Tell tell everybody where we're at and when when we'll be where. <laughs> All right, I'm gonna get this right this time. I think we used the we added an extra digit last time. We're gonna be booth 611. Um, so definitely come stop by 611. Um, come stop by and say hi. We'll have uh, our usual Utah chocolate truffles, a little bit of swag for you. Come hang out, talk to the team, get all your questions on 340B answered, any of the hot topics we have. I'll, I'll be there at our booth. Um, I'm just going to say it. I, I, I'm not sure about this one. Ada has a, um, has stickers with with um, our faces on them. I know I'm just I'm, I'm a little bit I'm, I'm, I'm a little worried. Um, and has a fun idea to, you know, if anyone's interested, you can grab those stickers and, and I guess stick them somewhere, take a picture, um, post it. Um, she has something planned for that. Aiden will actually be, um, be there as well, um, for, for the Tuesday anyway. And so anyway, I just, I, she asked me to share it. I did. I actually don't know the full plan with that. So you're gonna have to talk to Aiden about that, um, on Tuesday when you see her. Yeah, and we also got a shout out. Um, we've got a team member, Shakita Carter. She is uh, one of our 340B specialists. She's actually going to be presenting during a lessons from the field uh, topic. So uh, make sure to check out Shakita's presentation. I think she's going over some uh, tips and tricks for maintaining policies and procedures around your 340B program. So uh, good luck to Shakita for her presentation. Fantastic. Love Shakita. She presented at summer meeting as well. Um, so uh, yeah, looking forward to that. This, I think she's presented four meetings in a row. So she came from the covered entity um, provider group before, and, and she's she's been featured, had some type of platform presentation, I think, for the last three coalitions. So she is a uh, super veteran presenting. So great, great presenter. has got a lot of great information on policy. So definitely check her out. Excellent. Excellent. All right, Rob, good catching up with you. Hope you're feeling better. Maybe we'll sound a little bit better next time we record. It's just It's just our deeper, sexier voices. Yeah, right. The Jim <laughs> said I need I need some Ricola. So I gotta go get some cough lozenges here and then I'll be I'll be ready to go next time we record. So you gotta say Ricola. Ricola. Yeah, maybe we didn't get that right. Okay. We should probably I don't like do you like Ricola? I don't like Ricola. No, I, like I like the Ludens. I like cherry well, Ludens doesn't work. That's just pectin. I like the cherry halls. I like I need the I need the hardcore stuff. All right. Yeah, I don't like the I don't like menthol flavor, so I go with the 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 Ludens. It's probably just candy. You're right; it's just sugar. But it's just uh, pectin. Yeah, uh, that doesn't yeah, work for me. Yeah. Does it help? Placebo. It's it's just placebo. <laughs> so, okay, fair enough. All right. Yep. Well, good luck out there today, and uh, we'll we'll catch you when you come back. All right. Take care, everyone. Thanks for listening. Take care. Okay.
Thanks for listening to 340B Unscripted. Subscribe today on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.